to paradoxical occurrence of enhanced consciousness during the period of a non-functional brain that do not fit in our current materialist approach in science. everybody and welcome back to Chasing Consciousness. So today we have the bizarre phenomena of near-death experiences to get into. Now this intense experience reported by a significant portion of patients whose hearts were restarted after a short time of clinical death has fascinated researchers for many many years going right back to Plato. However, advances in cardiology techniques in the last 50 years have permitted doctors to save many, many more people, and thus to study this phenomena in a more controlled manner. So, for example, exactly how many people are having the experience regarding those who aren't, exactly how dead they were at the time, and so to start assessing the really controversial part of this discussion, which is whether these experiences can be explained in purely neurobiological terms, or if there is some evidence that consciousness can survive clinical death, if that is in fact the best word to use to talk about it. So who better to help us understand this than the cardiologist and author Dr. Pim van Lommel from the Netherlands. During his 35-year career as a cardiologist, Dr. van Lommel saw the need for a detailed study on this to nail down the physiological variables like medication and the length of time without oxygen, and to connect those to the psychological data about the content of these experiences and how they remained influential in the patient's lives over time. The prospective study he spearheaded was published in the respected Lancet Medical Journal in 2001, and his book about the research, Consciousness Beyond Life, The Science of the Near-Death Experience, was published in 2007. He also recently won second prize in the Bigelow Foundation for Consciousness Studies essay prize, which discusses the study and all of its implications. So I am so happy to be discussing this with a doctor and researcher who, like me, wants to look at scientific explanations for this phenomena without simply ignoring data that perhaps pushes beyond the neurobiological explanation. So I simply can't wait to get into this. So without further ado, let's go. Dr. Pim von Lommel, thank you so much for coming on Chasing Consciousness. How are you? I'm fine, thank you. So before before we get into your by now famous research study, let's let's clarify two important scientific terms. First, which is the clinical definition of what an NDE is, and second, what are the stereotypical first person experiences generally reported by these patients? So a near death experience is the reported memory a special state of consciousness with universal elements. And the usual elements are usually that they're aware of being dead. You can have the possibility of perception out and above your lifeless body and see their own TPR, cardiopulmonary resuscitation or surgery. Then they can come in a, a dark space, a dark room, which can be frightening for some of them. Then they see a small spot of light where they're attracted to and describe it as a tunnel. Then they come in an otherworldly dimension with beautiful landscapes, colors, music. They can meet deceased relatives. They can meet a being of light. And usually with this being of light, they, it's the feeling of unconditional love and acceptance and also you know, universal wisdom. And then they can have a life review. They relive their whole life from early childhood, and they feel connected with everything uh, and everybody in the past as well. So where you took some playbook uh, thing from your little sister, you feel how sad she was. And you, you can have also sometimes future events as well. So they can come to a border, and they know that when I cross this border, I will not come back. And then if you hear a voice from the being of light of these relatives, or just a voice, and they telling them it's not your time yet. You have 
to go back, there's still a task to fulfill, and then you have the awful feeling of coming back into your body, which is really awful for that because the consciousness is so widened and the body is ill still with a lot of complaints and pain and etc. by the traffic accident, by the myocardial infarction, etc. And these kind of experiences happen uh, where you do research in patients with the cardiac arrest. That's what our study was done. But you can also have this kind of death experiences in the coma due to traffic accidents or uh, cerebral hemorrhage or stroke. You're going to have a near-death experience where loss of blood in complicated childbirth. You can have it in, in, in nearly drowning children. You can have it in fear death, death situation like an imminent traffic accident or mountaineering accident. But you can also have it in, in meditation, in uh, severe depression or existential crisis, uh, just walking in nature. So you don't need always a non-functioning brain to have these kind of experiences. And the same kind of experience also happen in the end of life. So the uh, deathbed visions of end of life experience are in a sense, essence the same as well. It's interesting that that doesn't necessarily need to have a, a, a dead brain or a dying brain to have these experiences. I think Carl Jung, uh, one of the big heroes on this show, um, Carl Jung had uh, a near-death experience when he was on his deathbed. And in fact, uh, you know, he was called back as well. And it was very, very interesting, the contents of his near-death experience for any of the listeners that are interested in his book, Memories, Dreams, and Reflections. It talks about it. Absolutely fascinating. He, he had a myocardial infarction and cardiac arrest in 1943. Then he went out and saw planet Earth from above. He was the first one to describe planet Earth from above. It's is quite interesting as well. It's a beautiful, beautiful story, and also interesting what he ended up doing after he returned. It's it's potentially meaningful as well, but we're getting ahead of ourselves, aren't we? One aspect of the near-death experience is the transformation. Yeah. So it is one of the important aspects of the near-death experience is that people change. They lose the fear of death. They have no insight what is important in life. They feel connected with everybody and with everything and with nature. And the third aspect is the Enhanced intuition. Which we're going to be coming back to shortly. I think this is a very, very important point. It's very important for the definition of the NDE, it's also the transformation. That's why these kind of experiences are also called spiritual transformative experiences, STE. Okay, that's interesting. STE, I've never heard of that one. So let's start with your story, Pin. I mean, you're a, a hospital cardiologist. And you became intrigued by this phenomena, and you decided to set up uh, a really long-term scientific, medical, and psychological study to investigate. Tell us a little bit um, how you you got curious before we talk about the study itself. Yes. It's all started as scientific curiosity. The first time I heard about a patient who had an death experience, which the terminology did not exist yet, it was in 1969 during my rotating internship, just starting the, my specialization in cardiology. I was working one of the first coronary care units in Holland. Uh, we never know anymore that before 1967, all patients with cardiac arrest died because modern resuscitation techniques like defibrillation and external chest compression were not possible. So, Working as a young doctor in this coronary code, we had a patient with a cardiac arrest and we resuscitated him with several defibrillations and he became conscious after four minutes. And we were so happy as resuscitation team. I was the doctor in charge. But the patient was extremely disappointed and told me our uh, terminal and our light and beautiful music, etc. I never have forgotten this event, but I didn't know anything with it. I just started my specialization. Until in 1986, I read a book by George Ritchie, Return from Tomorrow. He had an extensive, very deep death experience as medical student in 1943 when he died of pneumonia. pneumonia. There were no antibiotics available. So I was intrigued by this very intense description of a death experience. And that was the moment I just started to ask my patients who had survived a cardiac arrest if they could remember anything from the period of unconsciousness. 
And within two years, after 50 patients survived cardiac arrest, 12 patients shared the ND with me. And that was the problem. I had never heard anything about Raymond Moody. I didn't read his book as well at that moment. I'd always learned that consciousness is a product of brain function. So I knew that when you have a cardiac arrest, that there's no brain function, no circulation, no breathing. It should be impossible to experience consciousness, let alone enhance consciousness with the possibility of perception, cognition, emotions, memories, etc. So this scientific curiosity for me was the start to, to, for a prospective study in the Netherlands in Tandridge hospitals in 1988. And it took another 10 years before it was published in the Lancet. Mm, and what valuable, valuable data, which we're going to get into now. So there, there are several famous studies uh, of NDEs. Uh, from the American psychiatrist Bruce Grayson, for example, and several British researchers, um, also with the help of Raymond Moody, who, as you say, coined the term. But your study uh, was unique in two ways. Firstly, regarding a control group. So you chose to include all of those who'd suffered cardiac arrest at all, uh, not only those who had experienced NDEs, uh, allowing a very valuable comparison between the two groups. And the second difference regards this transformational ability you mentioned, these experiences um, which you continued to monitor even several years after the cardiac arrest. Tell us how you desi designed the study and why. Yeah. Well, the reason we designed this prospective study until, because until that moment around, to only be retrospective studies. That means you get patients included who respond to an advertisement or to a lecture, etc. So you don't know the people who won't address this kind of, uh, join these kind of retrospective studies. So it's a huge selection in patients. I know that a lot of patients with any won't talk about it. So they don't, they'll be not included in those kind of studies as well. And until that time, the idea was it was just anoxia of the brain, lack of oxygen in the brain, or hallucinations or dreams or, or, or false memories, etc. So it had never been a real scientific prospective study design until that moment. So in our study, we included 344 consecutive survivors of cardiac arrest. It is still the largest study, and it's still the only study with statistical analysis. And uh, and the second part of the study was the longitudinal study with taped interviews after two years and eight years of all patients who survived the cardiac arrest with an NDE and a mesh control group of patients who survived the cardiac arrest with the same age, gender, and time interval to see if the transformation we talk about is a result of the cardiac arrest or the result of the, the death experience that had never been studied before in prospective design. So that's why we designed our study. And presumably one of your main scopes here was to try and get to a, a sort of causation, you know, to try and identify a medical causation for these extreme experiences. Did, did anything come out of your data that gave a medical explanation for why those patients, those certain patients, I think it's about 25%, isn't it, had NDEs? Was there any evidence why? Well, the reason we started the study was to, to, if you could know about something about the cause and content of the death experience. Now, what we found out that 18%, 62 patients, reported a classical near-death experience, and 82% did not report an NDE. And if we compared the two groups, then we found that the duration of cardiac arrest, two minutes or eight minutes, didn't matter at all. The duration of unconsciousness, five minutes of three weeks in coma, didn't matter at all. Patients who have a very short cardiac arrest in a cath lab, in rhythm, rhythm services, didn't matter at all. Complicated CPR with the need of artificial respiration, didn't matter at all. So the severity of anoxia, didn't matter at all, did not explain if patients had an ID or not. And the same was true for pharmacological explanation. So the, the medication they use, you have sometimes people in coma or complicated CPR have a lot of medication. 
It didn't matter at all if he had an ME or not. And so it was more or less. It was more or less arbitrary. There was n absolutely no causal connection between any of these variables and whether a patient had this experience or not. Uh, what, what I say is it's just a mystery why just only 18% had an ME while all these patients have been unconscious due to cardiac arrest. But presumably, it's possible that they just didn't remember. I mean, presumably, the chances are that, 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 that maybe... <coughs> Among these 82%, there could have been a portion that did have an experience, but they didn't remember. Is that, is that possible? Well, that is one of the discussions why we did the, uh, the, the, the longitudinal study with interviews over two and a half years. So we looked about the transformation. The transformation is the objective aspect of the subjective experience. Okay. And we know from children who have an ME under the age of six, they usually do not remember the ME. We all have the transformation. So the transformation is the objective aspect of the subjective experience. So we found that only patient with any had its classical transformation. No fear of death anymore. They believe in an afterlife. They feel connected to everybody and everything. So a new insight of what's in a product in life. It's not about power and money. It's about giving love and attention towards yourself and others. And the, second, and the third aspect, enhanced intuitive sensitivity. We only found in patients with an ME. Also, the interest in spirituality was specific just for the patient with an ME. We presume that the people who did not report an ME did not have an ME. But of course, there could have been some exceptions as well, but mm. we, proved, we didn't find them. Now, before we get into these implications and the personal transformation element um, and these similarities, in fact, with other similar potential phenomena for non-local consciousness, let's go back to the, the, the critics. No, let's go back to the neurobiological explanations, which have been more or less uh, stated to be the explanation for this. Um, so you have been accused of being uh, pseudoscientific in, in some of uh, the criticisms of your paper in The Lancet. Um, let's go through these explanations, these possible explanations. And if you can, Pim, just talk about the data that came out that just really excludes those as possible explanations. Because I think that some of those accusations of pseudoscience are not logical following your data. Well, the problem with critics is, especially for debunkers, that they, they don't have the data, but they just have prejudice and usually also willful ignorance. They don't know exactly what was found in the study as well, but they just have their opinion and try to attack the messenger. That's what happened. Mm. But if debunkers as well. But as I told you before, I was a believer in the materialistic approach in science as a cardiologist. I believed that I had learned medical school that consciousness is part of brain function. So it took quite a long time to accept that this was a wrong assumption. It, it, it is a never proven assumption, never proven hypothesis that consciousness is a function of the brain, a product of the brain function. That never been proved. But everybody believes this never proven hypothesis is true in the materialist science. So, and that is how I started as well. I just was curious if we could find an explanation. And what we found is that lack of oxygen in the brain did not matter at all. All patients had been, had, had, had a lack of oxygen in the brain due to cardiac arrest. And we know from other studies that the cardiac arrest, the brain stops functioning. So the clinical findings in those patients, what we call clinical death is, that they are unconscious within seconds. How long yeah. does that take out of interest? What is the definition of clinical death in medicine? Yeah. Clinical death is a period of unconsciousness caused by lack of circulation and breathing due to cardiac arrest. And when you don't start CPR, cardiopulmonary resuscitation, within five to 10 minutes, the brain will be irreversible damaged and the patient, all patients will die. So it's the first stage of dying. And you have to be, as soon as possible to start CPR, the people can survive. So you have only five to 10 minutes 
What's the official What's the official definition of brain deadness? Is there a time limit in terms of of how long the brain can survive without oxygen? What, like, how does medicine define it? It's usually, it's usually five to ten minutes, but when people drown in a very cold sea water, it could be twenty to thirty seconds. So, uh, temperature is also an important factor. And you get a kind of rest in the snow and ice. There's a little bit more time before the brain is irreversible damage. Okay, thank you. Usually five to ten minutes. So let, coming back so, to oxygen deprivation. Yeah. yeah. So what we see, the clinical findings of those patients who have a cardiac arrest is they lose consciousness within seconds. When you measure the blood flow to the brain, the Doppler echo, you see no blood flow to the brain within one second. The body reflexes, which are a function of the cortex of the brain, are gone. The brainstem reflexes, like the gag reflex, you can put a finger in someone's throat. The cortical reflexes, or the white and pupils, who don't react to light, which are the brain suburbs, are gone. Uh, breathing is gone, because the breathing center is close to the brainstem. And there have been patients with the EEG registration, that is a registration of the electroactivity of the brain, and we see within 10 to 20 seconds, there is a flatline EEG. No patient with a cardiac arrest has ever been successfully resuscitated within 20 seconds. So all patients in our and other prospective studies with cardiac arrest patients must have had a flatline EEG and the clinical findings, no brain function at all. And still in these kind of patients and also in the other studies, there have been four prospective studies survivors of cardiac arrest with 562, 562 patients that are between 15 and 25% of those patients reported an MDE, still when the brain was not functioning at all. And that's the challenge that we have to, again, discuss the never proven assumption that, that consciousness and family is a product of function of the brain. That's how it started the discussion. So as you say, the the first bit of evidence here is the fact that there was no correlation between how long they'd been without oxygen and the presence of an NDE experience. How do you completely exclude oxygen deprivation as an explanation? Well, because all patients in our study and other studies have been uh, unconscious because of cardiac arrest. And we know that they had a flatline within 20, 10 to 20 seconds. The clinical findings are no brain function at all because of, of an oxygen of the brain. And then still 50 to 25% of those patients report an NE, which means that they have had an enhanced consciousness with the possibility of perception, cognition, emotion, memories, and it appeared that the brain did not function at all. And do we know, uh, is it possible to know exactly when in that period of unconsciousness this NDE experience is had? Because I know that, for example, dreams, they can uh, happen very, very quickly in the brain uh, itself, but the experience for the experiencer can be very, very long. I mean, is there any way of excluding the possibility that this experience happens in the first few seconds as uh, the brain is, is losing its, its access to oxygen? Well, that has been a discussion as well. So there has been, uh, in the first seconds of anoxia, uh, or in the last seconds of just coming back into regaining uh, consciousness, there's usually delusion and, and, and people are very disturbed what is happening. And we know by uh, the corroboration of theoretical perceptions during out-of-body experience that this and is happening much later than the first second. The people can tell details of the surgery, details of the CPR, um, when it was much more than just the first few seconds. Just, and, and the other aspect is what you just told as well, that when you have a life review, you live your whole life instantaneously. There's no time and no space, no, no distance. So when you think of someone who will be there, you think of some place you will be, you think of your home, you will be there. So uh, when you had a cardiac arrest of two, three minutes, you can talk for one week what happened to your consciousness. Everything is at the same moment. Such massive implications, aren't they? So what's next? Um, the neurobiologist also mentioned medication as being a possible source of these kind of you know hallucinations. Uh, that's, that's what we excluded as well. So we 
had noted all the medication people had, and that sometimes a lot of medication with complicated CPR, they had coma for weeks. But it didn't matter at all. So there was no distinct difference between people with a lot of medication or with hardly any medication if they could report an MD. And what else do the neurobiologists talk about? Well, I don't know anymore because we have had all those with high CO2 in the blood, the low O2 in the blood, uh, all these kind of things like hypoxia, etc. But uh, we all could exclude it in our study as well. So we could exclude all the medical, pharmacological, and psychological explanations that had been used until our study. And also the other prospective studies said that the paradoxical occurrence of enhanced consciousness during the period of a non-functioning brain do, do not fit in our current materialist approach in science. But given these experiences and given your data and these inferences you've, you've drawn, how does conventional medicine explain this presence of consciousness um, if it does in fact rely on a live brain and a nervous system? How do they explain it away, if you like? Well, it's very hard for them. Sometimes they say, well, you cannot measure all the electricity in the brain just with the EEG. You measure the cortical activity, not the deeper structures of the brain. But there have been studies done, the humans and animal studies, with induced cardiac arrest. Now, you also, in the animal studies, you could measure the deeper structures of the brain, but there was no activity at all. And, uh, I mean, also that to experience our waking consciousness, as, uh, like we are sitting now, we need coordination of all many neural centers in the cortex, this exchange of information. And this coordination and, and exchange of information we call the cortical activity as well. And there's no cortical activity at all during cardiac arrest. So this kind of explanation makes it really exceptional to find an, an explanation to why people could have a, a consciousness during cardiac arrest. It's just impossible when you use the materialist approach. So obviously, uh, you and your colleagues with this robust data and feeling strong to be able to refute the neurobiological explanations, presumably you wanted to find a scientific explanation, even if it did push beyond these reductionist explanations. What... What did the data lead you and your colleagues to conclude about the existence of consciousness uh, after clinical death of the body and the brain? How did you explain it scientifically? Well, also based on the results of our and other prospective studies in survival cardiac arrest, based on the, the neuroscience, what we know about the brain, and based on is analogy with quantum physics. I believe that consciousness is not localized in the brain and not produced by the brain. That consciousness is beyond time and beyond space. As you can hear from patients, rather than the ethics space, everything happens at the same time, beyond time and beyond space, and everything is connected. And these are ideas we know from quantum physics. Everything is entangled beyond time, beyond space instantaneously. But that's why we came to the conclusion that consciousness must be more local, beyond time, beyond space, and the brain function. The brain doesn't function as a producer, but as a facilitator to experience consciousness. Uh, and I compared with the, with the YouTube, with the iCloud, you have one billion uh, websites and, and YouTube films. And you, wherever you are in the world, you can open your laptop and receive some of these websites and YouTube films, which your laptop do not, does not produce the iCloud with the billions of websites, just receives it. So our brain and body has a receiving function, a transceiving function, like an interface or filter as well. So not everything from this non-local consciousness will be received into your waking consciousness because it's so much information as well. But uh, so the brain and the body has a 
interface function, filter function, and not a producing function to experience consciousness. That's our conclusion. Mm, fascinating and very, you know, very controversial for the materialists, isn't it? And and I think another thing that switches off the reductionist um, mainstream is this idea of the survival of the consciousness. No, because obviously the general public have always had this uh, fascination with life after death and paradise and all of these questions, which inevitably come up for the people who have experienced that. But I wanted to ask you, Pim, like, could survival of consciousness perhaps be the wrong word? And this could be why it's putting off people coming from scientific backgrounds. For example, if we associate ourselves with our body, with our name, with our personality, then whatever it is that survives when all of those things die in the body may not be us, you know, in that sense, that died with the body, but some fragment of a collective consciousness. Do you think this phenomena forces us to redefine our conception of self and, and thus of life after death? First of all, I never used the terminology life after death. Mm. Because life is a biological system, but there is no biological system left when your body dies. So I'm always talking about the continuity of consciousness. Okay. I'm not talking about survival. I'm not talking about life after death. I'm just talking about continuity of consciousness. And this is also a more scientific approach as well, I think. So our consciousness, which is more local, it has no beginning and has no end. It's always been there. It's kind of fundamental in the universe. Together with information, consciousness has always been there and will always be there. And we just can receive just a small fragment of this consciousness. And the essence of who we are, our self, the capital, is always there. And the ego, what we experience as our, in our waking consciousness, it's, it's just, just a small aspect that you know, disappears now, but the essence will never disappear. Always be there in the non-local realm. And this self will be connected with other people as well. So that's why we can meet deceased relatives during ND. We can meet the consciousness of deceased relatives and after that communications. It's about 2 million people in, in the Netherlands, about 125 million people in Europe have had after-death communications. So in the first days, weeks of months after the death of a loved one, they are in contact with this consciousness. They see them, they feel them, they hear them. And for those people, it's quite clear that consciousness does not disappear when the body has died. But yeah, so reluctant to share with others the same as with the death experience that a lot of people don't know about it. But I've met so many people with the death also a lot of people who after that communication who always tell me, I'm the first one I should with you, I should I share with you because people just react uh, negative. They don't believe it. It's just a total nonsense, just a dream, it's just a wishful thinking. It's just your know, problems you have with the death of your loved one. So the problem is that people don't talk about it, don't share it with others. The moment that people will talk about the death experience, after death communication, share death experience, etc., our ideas about life and death have changed worldwide. There is such a taboo around these topics because there is this sort of um, highly secular criticism of any kind of uh, religious projection, though this desire for our belief system to kind of, you know, map onto reality and sort of basically wishful thinking. You know, we don't want to lose those people. We want to uh, uh, to feel that we have some kind of uh, existence after our biological death. It is an extremely loaded question, and it does mean that the implications of data such as yours, um, they're quite triggering. You know, they do force people to, to take these sort of data-refuting um, positions where they just push back on that for no reason other than the fact that really it is a taboo. Um, and this is no more... I, I, I just can't... 
I don't think it's true what you're telling me. About 55 to 65% of the general population all over the world, also in the US, believe in some form of afterlife. But scientists are extremely reluctant to accept this idea. And the, the 200 most respected scientists in the world who are the editors of all the scientists' science journals, only 7% is spiritual or religious and 93% is atheist or agnostic. And they tell me this is nonsense what you're writing down. But the general population is much more open because they have all these kind of experience. And also hardliners, debunkers, the sooner they have an enemy themselves, they change. Because it's, and they say, I have you know, quite a lot of physicians who have an to tell me, I've always said this is total nonsense, but now I know I was wrong. So the personal experience is so important to change. And the general population is much more open than this hardcore particular scientist. It's just a very small percentage of all the people in the world. And that's interesting, isn't it? That they 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 really don't represent the um the population that actually our culture is being driven by that scientific paradigm um and they that opinion those implications form an opinion that literally is 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 actually not representing the the opinions and experiences and intuitions of the general public maybe that is another thing is about religion we found no influence of religion in having had an ending or not so people with Christianity, Buddhism, atheism, didn't matter at all. And another thing is that a lot of, you know, Plato has written 200, more than 2,000 years ago that, first of all, a classical neodastic experience by the soul the earth, but also he wrote that the body is the temporary carrier of the soul, which is eternal, but also in Buddhism, uh, the Upanishads, the Vedas, the Buddhism, in the Kabbalah, uh, anthroposophy, theosophy, the indigenous people, all have the religions, where they know that if you have to be in contact with your, your grandparents and other people who have died before. So it's just the last two, three hundred years with the materialist side that there have been some problems, especially in scientists, especially in neuroscientists. Who lose their jobs and their research money if it would be true what I'm telling. Absolutely. So they're frightened. Absolutely. And uh, we're finding this coming uh, on the show from all of the different areas of research. Wherever there's any inconvenient data, it's not so much that the scientists don't uh, want to consider it, it's that they are scared for their funding oh, yes. to consider it. Oh, yes. Yes. And the photo position, you know, I know that some people, scientists who are dispelled from university because they are studying things like meditation or whatever. It was not accepted by the majority of scientists in the university, so they lost their job. And a classic example of this, we find in your data, the extraordinary result of your study, that a significant amount of NDEs had heightened intuition, an ability to put themselves very, very deeply into the other person's position, with some even experiencing precognition and clairvoyance. Now, tell us about these data points. Um, what sort of proportion of, of your study patients are we talking about? But the majority of patients who have endothelial have this enhanced intuition. And you have to ask about it because they're so reluctant to share it with you. Mm. Uh, if I the first thing perhaps we should tell that despite the fact that the, the adaptive phase is a positive, usually a positive experience, it has a hugely negative impact on the lives of the patient with ND. Nobody will listen. And there are years of depression, loneliness, and homesickness, 10, 20, 30 years before they can share it with others and accept it and later integrate it. So it is a, a, it's a spiritual trauma as well. So it's not easy at all to have this kind of experience. And then on that alone, this enhanced intuition that you know what other people think and feel. Now, how can we explain it? Then we see the brain as an interface, as a transmitter. There's a certain filter function or threshold of consciousness, William James has said. 
I mean, you have an NDE, you just don't receive channel one, your own consciousness, but channel two, three, four, consciousness of others as well, because your threshold of consciousness has changed. You receive much more information from consciousness of others. You're just directly in the non-local reality. And that's why you can receive precognition, prognostic dreams, future events. You know about the incoming phone call. You know that people will die. You know that people are sick. You know that people have problems with their mother or father or parents, etc. You know that it's all because you know what they are feeling and thinking. And that's such a problem because you don't want it. It changed your life as well. Um, so it's it's not easy to have this enhanced situation. This reminds me um, of the research led by Ray Hernandez, John Klimo, and and Rudy Schild at the Edgar Mitchell Foundation for Research into Extraterrestrial and Extraordinary Experiences. Uh, they completed a five thousand plus experiences study a few years ago that found significant changes in the experiences, intuitions, and abilities similar to those of your study. And they hypothesized that there may be a connection between all of these phenomena, the OBE, the NDE, the lucid dreaming, the psi phenomena, shamanic journeying, remote viewing, extra-dimensional contact, to name just a few of the ones that they're connecting. Now, I know this is extremely difficult to speak about in scientific terms. Non-causal phenomena are notoriously difficult. But with the way quantum physics is going, I think we better get used to it. Um, Do you think that there may be a certain type of brain phenomena, or perhaps the other way around, a certain type of brain phenomena that's susceptible to these kind of of experiences, or, or even maybe it's the other way around, that these experiences open up some door of perception to a wider field of consciousness that appears not to close again. Do, do you think that this is what's happening with these experiences, and which way around is it? Well, but, but I told you before, we call these NDEs spiritual transformative experiences, because people change especially that has intuition. And you have contact with the non-local reality, the non-local consciousness, where everything at a distance is there. There's no time and no, no space, no distance as well. So this, what you call all this terminology, I usually don't use it. But the access to the non-local reality has been permanently changed. But remember that under the age of six, five to six, all small children still are open. But they lose their openness because of schools, because of the parents. And when parents are open, those children are open as well. Uh, so there's a sense intuition. It's just most people when they are born are open, have access to this local reality. And we lose it. What we know from and these studies in children, there's one study done, a prospective study with people, but children had a coma or near drowning, et cetera. 70% of those patients reported a near-death experience. And retrospective studies, usually between the age of 30 and 40 years, usually traffic accidents, about 30 to 40% of those patients reported that need. And our study, mean age of 62 years old, 80% reported that the patients who were younger than 60 had more NDEs than the older older group of patients. And we found also that patients who had an NDE as a child had more frequently an NDE as an adult with cardiac arrest. Also, women who have been uh, sexually abused, they leave the body, have more NDEs as an adult. So the connection between consciousness, the brain, and the body has been permanently changed. And the older you are, the stricter the connection between body and brain is, has grown. When you're young, you're much more open. The connection is much more loose. So, in your opinion, it's not necessarily the ND experience that permanently changes the brain. It could actually be a, an out-of-time uh, phenomenon in which that propensity was there uh, from the start. Let's say the mother of Carl Jung was open as well. And Carl Jung had, was open more than other people as well. 
So sometimes you hear it in families, but I think because in those families, everybody is more open and I accept this openness as well. Mm. Now, you've just received the second prize from the Bigelow Institute for Consciousness Studies essay contest. Congratulations, Pim. Thank you very much. This, it, um, listeners, it's a very concise and clear summary of all the research we've been talking about today. So do feel free to uh, go off. And um, Pim, is that something we're going to be able to link in the show notes? Or is that something that, okay. that listeners need to buy? Oh, yeah, yeah but no, no, you can... On our website, you go to the scientific uh, articles and you can find it and download it for free. And also on the Bigelow website, you can download it for free. Well, it's a great read and it goes into the detail without um, obviously having to go through an entire book of data or a scientific paper. So it's a very, very good research tool. Now, the reason I bring up the Bigelow Institute is that they've been researching these phenomena for a long time funded by the aerospace millionaire Robert Bigelow. Um, and this research has, has also got the attention of the American military too, who've always taken a distant interest in these phenomena for all their potential tactical applications. Uh, check out the episode that we're doing on remote viewing, which was developed in a military context, if you're interested in that. Now, firstly, Pim, tell us, what do you think are the most interesting findings of the Bigelow Institute, but maybe also of similar organizations like the IONS, no, the Institute of Noetic Sciences, in terms of begging a new scientific paradigm regarding these phenomena. Do you there think... Are there on. are a lot of... There are a lot of... Well, one of the first things is I would like, love to mention is that consciousness changes the function and structure of the brain. It's mind of a matter, you know, from placebo effect. When you believe that you got a medication which is useful, then your body, your, your brain changes as well. We know from patients with depression, with chronic uh, pain, and with Parkinson's disease, when you give them uh, placebo, you will see, see the same changes in the brain as you and when you use give, give them a real medication as well. When you do meditation, your structure and the function of your brain changes as well. And it's the same for your body. Let's say when you are acutely frightened, your blood pressure goes up and your heartbeat goes up. So your body reacts to what's happening in your consciousness. I always say sexual arousal starts in your consciousness and your body follows. So everything what you experience in your body and in your function, structure of your brain, the body, is depending on your consciousness. So consciousness is first, and everything follows. So what you talked about, said about remote viewing, I'll call it non-local reception, perception, non-local, it started in the peer in some universities, and Stephen Schwartz has done it in, in, back to, in the past, he found in Egypt, old, old palaces, but it never been found, found before. And the CIA followed his studies. And what they also found, is that a lot of military people who just joined this remote uh, fuel or non-local perception were able to do it, but they didn't know. So you don't have to be a special person to be able to do it. That's what the military found as well. Do you think we need a new scientific paradigm? We need a new um, openness in the scientific community to allow this kind of research to take place without being... Um, dismissed as pseudoscientific? Yeah. Well, I think science is asking questions with an open mind. This is science for me. I forget what you blew Be open. So science is asking questions with an open mind. That's my definition. And the, the problem with the current material science is that only those things that you can objectify, what you can measure, what you can duplicate, what you can falsify, that is true. But you can measure, that is true. Now, consciousness, what you feel and what you think, you cannot objectify, you cannot measure, you cannot duplicate, you cannot falsify. Because consciousness, the essence of who we are, what we think of you, is beyond our current scope of science. And we have to include subjective experiences. And that's what we call the post-materialist science. 
we have to expand science to include subjective experience. And that's what's happening also because of the many consciousness studies. The Journal of Consciousness Studies 50 years ago had about 70% materialist approach of consciousness. Now it's about 30% materialist approach. So it's changing. So you have the post-materialist science, which is happening now and more and more, more accepted in science. But still the neuroscientists, the materialist science, materialist scientists are very reluctant to be open because they're frightened to be told. I know scientists, the professors, who privately tell me you could be right. Officially said it is total nonsense until they retire. And then he said it could be the other way around. <laughs> it's a, so that's what's happening now. It's interesting, isn't it? When, when we go beyond and they've got nothing left to lose, uh, they are willing to put their name on it. It's just so interesting how how many of my guests are only willing to talk about this once they're, they're officially retired. Well, that, that's what I mean. They're frightened. They're frightened because, because of the position in the university, because of the, the research money, etc. And, and the exceptions are those scientists who have an NE themselves, Evan Alexander, Mary Neal, many other physicians and other people who had an NE just by cardiac arrest or coma or near drowning or just deep meditation. Marjorie Wulikoff as well. So there are a lot of scientists, also neuroscientists, who had personal experience change the view about body and mind. And what, what's your opinion about this type of information? Because what we're talking about here is the ability to include a different type of cognitive information, what I would call intuitive information, which is clearly reported by remote viewers. It's clearly reported by out-of-body experiences as well who are able to manipulate their out-of-body experience that they're able to report and to to even to triangulate with other out-of-body uh, uh, experiences to say, okay, are you seeing this? Are you seeing that? But that information remains intuitive. It remains non physical, non-verifiable, and particularly uh, the, the main problem that the cognitive scientists have here is with the alphanumeric, meaning that they can't confirm, often they can't confirm letters and numbers out in the physical real world, even though they may report, as you mentioned, being above their body and seeing the exact, um, uh, the exact things that the cardiologists were doing to save their lives. So there is this real life experience that is verifiable, but when it comes to sort of really establishing it, they're relying on a different type of information, the type of information that comes through these non-local conscious experiences. Do we need... That's what we're talking about. We were talking about the first-person experiences, subjective experiences. But, it's but, interesting but, what you mentioned about the perception during out-of-body experiences. So we had hidden signs in coronary care units. You see, if we could objectify this non-local information, uh, the, 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 that we could perceive, not see, but it is perceiving. But you have even 60 degrees perceiving. You can see details and overview at the same moment from the position out of the block of your body. Your body is there with closed eyes, or with your surgery, your closed the eyes are closed as well. But you can perceive, even blind people can perceive during out-of-body experience. But until now, there has been no patient who ever reported the hidden sign during cardiac arrest, during surgery. Also, some party with a nerve student. Now, the question is why? Do they not report these hidden signs? That is because what we perceive and what we see in our during this life as well is depending on our intention and attention. When you use your mobile phone when you're driving, a lot of accidents because they say, I didn't see the car coming. It is what is called the inattentional blindness. That we very well studied and I refer to studies as well in my book. Uh, so when you're out of your body, you see your own resuscitation, you see your body there, and then you recognize it as your body. You don't start to look around if there are hidden signs somewhere. No. So it's about inattentional blindness that there's no objective report. But what is important is the cooperation of uh, critical perceptions during CPR. And you ask doctors or nurses or family members what really happened at what moment, and then it fits together. 
That'd be the book now, The Self Does Not Die. That'd be the um, chapter written in the book by Ayers, as well, with more than 200 cases with corroborated frederick perception. And about 98% of what they described really happened during surgery, during cardiac arrest, during coma. But this, for me, Pim, this is asking us, because it's coming from so many different fields now, this is why I mentioned all of these other phenomena that seem to be working on in a, some kind of similar way that's yet to be established. It seems to me that we need to go further than just calling this first-person experience and actually establish a different type of information. Because if there is some form of triangulation happening between people who are uh, sharing these experiences, we can talk about it as a, a, a type of real information, but it's clearly not causal and perceptive in our normal sense of information. Okay. So don't we need a new term here that talks about this particular type of information so we can separate it from just a simple subjective experience, a first-person experience, and say, well, actually, no, what we're talking about is a different type of information here. Well, it's the information you receive when you access the non-local realm. The non-local realm is that you are in, in a realm without time and without space. So you can have future events, you can have access to past events, you can have access to other people as well. Can you so think of a term? Can you think of a term that might, shall we say, bridge the gap between those who are looking for scientific understanding of this type of information without yeah. just calling it first person experience? I call it non-local information exchange which is information not received by your senses and not received by your body. Non-local information exchange, and that fits everything in. I think that's a beautiful hold-all term. Now, Pim, just to wrap it up now, I want to come back to the transformational element. Now, I know that you went into to, to great lengths, not only to interview in detail these experiences, to really get a sense of, of what it was that had changed about their perception of the world and, and about um, very, very deep questions of existence and reality and what it is to be human. But you even went further. And as you said, you interviewed them after a couple of years and then you interviewed them after eight years as well because you were interested in the, the, the long-term sustainability of the influence of these kind of experiences. And this is important, isn't it? So, for example, we've looked at on the show the use of psychedelic therapy, guided therapy for the treatment of depression. And what we often find in the results is that this afterglow wears off after a short period and, and some of the insights gained in that alternative state of consciousness fades away. And I'm interested to find out if you found something similar with these near-death experiences or if, or if perhaps it was longer term than you expected. I didn't have any expectation because we didn't know. But what we found after two and eight years, that transformation was deeper after eight years than after two years. Deeper, they, deeper in what sense? Deeper that they were more aware that death is not here. They were not aware, more aware of the afterlife. They were more aware of spirituality and the importance of acceptance and love towards yourself and towards others, to be connected with others as well. And trying to accept and integrate the enhanced intuitive sensitivity. But again, it takes years and years. We once did a study in 82 patients rather than the with a heat interval of 24 four years, between seven months and 70 years. And so half of those patients being involved were not able to share the energy with others. So it's important that we have to accept that these kind of changes are so changing the worldview and not accepted in, the, in, in science, not accepted in, in, in the majority of the, our current materialist uh, community as well. But 70% of the patients that we get a divorce because they say it's not the same person as I married before. So the change is permanent and more and more intense the longer the interval is. 
You also talk about a sense of interconnectivity, the sense that there is a non-separateness. What kind of experience in the NDA leads people to that kind of belief, do you think? So the NDA is also called the experience of oneness because they feel connected with everything and everybody. So they feel connected with other people, but they also feel connected with, with animals, with, with, with plants, with the planet Earth. If you connect because they know innerly that they are one. And what you do to others will come back to yourself. So we are positive towards others. You give love to others, you will experience love as well. But when you get negative thoughts and negative actions towards nature, towards planet Earth, it will come back to you as well. Everything is connected. And this is very uh, common among other alternate states of consciousness, isn't it? Particularly the sort of classical mystical experience talks about all, almost all of the same, the same features here, doesn't they? Um, the last one I was interested in is uh, this idea of compassion, because uh, something that's come up a few times on the show is the fact that, for example, in, in the case of ayahuasca, you know, the, the uh, active ingredient being DMT, often um, the experiencers have a sense that they are perceiving a memory from the point of view of somebody else. And I believe that this happens quite a lot in the life review, doesn't it? And I'm interested in this idea that the ability to push beyond the sort of ego consciousness, as if it were, is often supported by the fact that I'm seeing something, an experience that I had from my first person point of view, but I'm now seeing it from an, another first person's point of view, understanding directly the impact of my actions on that person because I'm experiencing it from their first person point of view. Is this reported in near-death experiences as well? Well, that's what they reported in their life review, that they feel the, well, everything what they did to others, they are connected with the consciousness of others in the past as well. They know uh, what they did, what they said, and what they thought toward others as an impact of the other person as well. So that's very, very intense. So they change the way they live. And what they do when they are back is first of all, compassion, empathy towards yourself, accept your own negative aspects you all have, and then have com uh, compassion, empathy towards others. Uh, so love, compassion, and empathy towards yourself and others is a main aspect of the change when you're able to integrate your experience into your life, which will again take years and years. So our ideas are about death, so, uh, uh, how we live our life as well. Absolutely. Now, Pim, you speak about this. Uh, you, meant, you mentioned earlier how very often scientists need an experience of their own to be able to push beyond the dogma that we've been educated into. You sound like you've you you must have had some kind of experience of your own. Was there an experience behind all of this somewhere along the line, or are you just literally looking at the data and making deductions? I'm always asked if I had an experience myself, and my answer is always not as far as I know. But I resonate with all the people who have an NDE. I feel their emotions, I feel their reluctance to share with others, so I'm very open. And they know it, they feel it that I'm open. So they come to me and share their energy with me as well. Um, but I was raised as a materialist cardiologist, so it took years to accept that I was wrong in the past. And now I tell always that people at NE have been my teachers. Ken uh, Ring, as a professor of psychology, did a seminar of three months for his psychology students. And he, had an inquiry before the seminar, and then the students had contact with people of NE, had to read about NEs, have to write uh, a piece about NE, and then after three months, they had the same inquiry. They all had changed. So when you're open and interested in the data, you will change. And I think that is a wonderful moment to wrap it up, listeners. I think that openness uh, from within the scientific community, I think is really right at the center of what we're trying to do here on Chasing Consciousness is to just 
just to appeal to that sense of openness and reason and logic and uh, try and push beyond some of the limits of this dogma. So listeners, if you are interested in this, do please check the show notes. We've got uh, a lot of links to Pim's work there. But most importantly, if you want to get really deep into the data here, you must go off and buy Pim's book, Consciousness Beyond Life, The Science of Near-Death Experiences, because I think it does a very, very good job of balancing some of the important implications of this data with considering very, very deeply and scientifically uh, the biological explanations as well. So it leaves only for me to thank you very, very much, Pimad Lommel, for being with us today and wishing you all the very best for the future. You're welcome. You did a good job. <laughs> thank you. Thank you.